to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so honored to welcome Dr. David Katz. How are you, sir, today? Oh, I'm great, Lori. Great to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time and uh, a couple of reschedules that have happened, and I so appreciate your patience with everything. And um, today we have a lot to cover. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very um, interesting time that we're entering into in our food system, which you are the expert in. And before we get started with everything, I just always like to ask docs, you know, a lot of people like to know, why did you enter medicine to begin with? Like, what was your interest and when did you know being a doctor was what you wanted to be? Because I think that tells a lot about a person. Well, I hope so. You know, in my case, I think it may only tell that I'm fairly simple-minded. It was sort of a path of least resistance. My dad's a cardiologist. It was kind of right there in front of me. I was a overachieving students. So, you know, I kind of had, I had the right skill set to move in that direction. But, it, but another part of it was, I, I really was inspired by my dad and he'd, he'd be on call. He'd be having this conversations. I wouldn't understand everything he was saying, but I knew he was involved in, in life and death decisions and that other people were just counting on him. And I thought that's a hero. You know, I mean, somebody who can make a difference at, at those moments of acute need, that that's a hero. That's a real world hero. And, you know, it, it, it was very inspiring and uh, made me want to move in the same direction. And I, I was a rambunctious kid, uh, broke a lot of bones. So I spent a lot of time in ERs and, uh, you know, thanks to orthopedists was put together again many times and really appreciated their efforts. So, well, you know, the ability to intervene like that and, and give somebody their functionality back, that's really cool. So that's kind of where it all started for me. And then my career moved in a very different direction because once I learned an awful lot about what makes people sick, I also learned a lot about how much of that illness never needs to happen. And so it was after med school and internal medicine that I decided I, I, I'm not done. And I, I went on to train in preventive medicine and focus on lifestyle. And the effort to keep people vital in the first place has really populated my career ever since. Because I find it interesting that you founded the um, Yale Griffin Prevention Center in 1998. So that mm. was 21 years ago. And I don't think lifestyle medicine was on the forefront of many physicians. And what gave you the inspiration to take on starting such a center? And what was when, when, you, when you approached someone to start such something like that, what was their initial reaction? Like, how did you convince them to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're right. Lifestyle medicine wasn't a thing. I mean, I certainly didn't know the terminology. And, and more than that, you know, when I when I was looking around, I was so just go back a few years before that. Uh, I was doing my training in internal medicine. Decided I wanted to do something about not letting people get so sick in the first place, and was very interested in nutrition. And you know, I started asking colleagues, "What do I do?" And the advice was PhD in epidemiology, PhD in nutritional biochemistry, uh, fellowship in cardiology, fellowship in endocrinology, fellowship in gastroenterology. Nobody mentioned preventive medicine and nobody knew about it. And I found my way to the preventive medicine program at Yale and the opportunity to focus on the prevention of chronic disease. And it was a perfect fit. So I wound up doing that. But so lifestyle medicine wasn't a thing, but even preventive medicine was totally under the radar. Thankfully, that's changed in the years since. And, uh, you know, basically at the time, back in 1997, I was um, a residency director. I was running a combined residency program in internal medicine, preventive medicine that I helped build. And the opportunity to apply to the CDC to create a prevention research center fit in beautifully with my, uh, <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff uh, in, in the background here. Um, 
fit in beautifully with uh, you know the need to train the residents mm -hmm. and um, create opportunities for research of practical value out in the community. Um, and so, you know, the, the RFP, the request for proposals came over the transom. I saw and said, this is perfect. I've got to go for it. So I, you know, I turned to the Dean of uh, Public Health at Yale at the time who said, you know, this isn't the kind of stuff Yale routinely does. You'll never get this. This is never going to happen. <laughs> uh, so you're right to think that there was skepticism, sort of ahead of the curve. Uh, but I said, yeah, but it's too good a fit. I'm, I'm going to go for it. And so basically spent six weeks, you know, working with, with a team killing myself to try and get this 500 page application done. And I don't think our Dean missed a day. I think every day he it's kind of like Polly wants a cracker. It was brag. You're never going to get the funding. <laughs> keep, keep going, but you're never going to get this. And then we got it. And the rest is history. So the prevention center has been here ever since. And, and it's, you know, it, it, it's gone successfully now through five competitive application cycles, which is all but unprecedented in, in the mix. Um, and we just secured funding for the next five years, but I'm, I'm handing over the baton. So I, I've run the center for 21 years and I'm stepping down to run my own startup company and do some other things I think have uh, potential to, to at, at this point, maybe have a greater immediate impact on the stuff I care so much about. Um, but it's been a great privilege. And what we focused on at the Prevention Research Center, as the name implies, is studies leveraging lifestyle interventions in various populations to try and prevent chronic disease. Absolutely. That's phenomenal. And it does, it takes a lot of work to go against the skepticism. I've been there myself. Now it looks like um, you have, I was looking through the books and they have you listed on some websites as also writing books about chess. Was that you or a different David Katz? About chess? I wish, I wish, no, that's not me. I wish that All were right. me. I, I love chess. I'm such a mediocre player. Um, All right. you know, I was I, like, <laughs> I really like it a lot. You know, I mean, I can play, but no, I'm okay. certainly not qualified to write books other than how to do it badly. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I, I, can, I can write a book that says, don't play chess like this. Yeah. Well, you know, there might be a need for that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> the negative, the positive. All right. So at least 15 books. Is that correct? The number I think, that I, I can find? I think it's 17. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, multiple editions of several textbooks. Gotcha. Um, I think it's 17. It's either my 17th or my 18th. I think my 18th comes out in the spring. I just did a, a, a book with um, Mark Bittman uh, that sort of combines the science and sense of healthy eating. That comes out oh. in, I think it's, it's March, March or April. Oh, wonderful. Definitely. Have to get excited, love Mark. excited about that. Yeah. 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 Me too. Yeah. Mark's a great guy. Absolutely. Um, so the truth about food is the one that came out a year today. And right. um, yeah, yeah. I'm amazed it's been a year already. Yeah. Well, yesterday was my youngest 21st birthday. So I'm already kind of into the dates anyway, but this okay. is not a, um, is not a, an overnight read, which I mentioned before you started, <laughs> but you have a really great sense of humor. And if you will oblige me, just I just want to give people an idea of what they can find in here. It's just, I read this and was just, it's like, this is like such common sense that's not so common, you know, that type of thing. But you talk about it on page, just page five alone, the 12 truths of diet. So, um, I mean, I'll just pick out a few, but the, there are fundamental truths about diet and health. And you said, truly, like, really, that really is true. Yeah. And, um, but eating well is simple, but not easy. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. And yeah. then, um, I think it's really, really important here. What you said as well, 
eating well can add years to your life and your life to your years, which you do say often. Eating badly can help kill you generally slowly and uncomfortably, which I think is the perfect definition <laughs> of chronic disease. So those are just a few of the 12 that really cracked me up. So which I'm like, yeah, I mean, we should almost put that as the 12 rules in every, you know, waiting room, like people should be reading this. Um, it, it, it's just common sense. But, you know, when you wrote the truth about food, what was your desire? What was your, your aim for the consumer who's reading this? What is the message that you really want us to focus on? Because there's so much, there's, there's a lot in here. Yeah. So, well, well, thank you. And, and yeah, it's a big book. So a few things to say about the book and, and then my specific aim. So it's a big book because actually the truth about food is simple, but the lies are complicated. And, and the ability to separate what's true from what's not true requires that you know what is true, but also why it's true and how you can tell if it's true and what you can trust and what you shouldn't trust. And that's a long story. That's why it's a 750-page book. I joke in the book, and as you say, I do a lot of joking in the book. I had to keep myself entertained because I was writing everything I know about what I know and how I know it and why I know it. And you know, I, I really wanted to basically just do a brain dump and right. put everything in there. And um, you know, I really, I, I, I kept myself entertained along the way. And one of the things I say in the book is. The truth about food is simple. In fact, the truth about food could be a seven-word book, and they wouldn't even be my words. They'd be Michael <laughs> Pollan's words, Michael <laughs> Pollan's words that everybody knows. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Thanks for coming. You know, It's a very, very short book, and yet it's a 200,000-word book, and so the other 199,000... Uh, 993 yeah uh, <laughs> words are you know here's why that's true and here are all the lies that are in the way so then that leads into my aim so you know look, there are a lot of good books about diet there are a lot more bad books about diet frankly but but you know the world didn't really need another diet book but I thought what I'd like to do that's novel here's the aspiration I'd like to be able to immunize my readers against the next fad diet, not the last one. Anybody could do that. Anybody could tell you why yesterday's bad diet was silly and bad. But I don't know what tomorrow's is gonna be, but if you know how to think about information, if you know how clinical trials can be good or bad or in between, if you know how the media cycles can distort the science, if you know what to look out for, if you know how people can be wrong and sound so right, uh, if you know when you should step away from your credit card so nobody gets hurt, if you know who you can trust and who you shouldn't, if you can be immunized against bad information about diet, then you're immune to the next fad diet and the next and the next. And, you know, you're just, you're going to be able to make good choices forever, which is what experts are able to do. So that was my goal. It wasn't just, here's what's true today and you'll forget about it tomorrow and need a new book, but rather here's how to think about how we know what's true and why we can tell it's true and how to differentiate the truth from the lies and where the lies come from and what gives them away. And that took 750 pages. And I, you know, I would say most people don't want to read this book start to finish, but you know, if there's a topic of interest, so you know, what is the truth about cooking oil? I've heard some people say you shouldn't add any to your diet. I've heard some say extra virgin olive oil is great. I've heard others question that. I heard canola is good, but then some say coconut's better. What's the truth? So there's an entry, the truth about cooking oil, and it's detailed and there's citations. 
And then there's a very practical conclusion. And what about gluten? Is it really important? And what about lectins? Is that really important? And is coffee good for us or bad for us? Is alcohol good for us or bad for us? So all, I take all that on. So all those details mm. are in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the most important contribution that's truly novel is how to think about the information about diet so that you're always getting good intel and mm-hmm. sifting out the bad intel so that when tomorrow's silly diet comes along and it's on the Today Show or Good Morning America, you will be immune. Mm-hmm. And, well, you're giving us critical thinking skills. And so and when you're talking about intel, it reminds me when I was, I was active duty in the Air Force. And so when you're in a battlefield situation, not that I was in the battlefield. I mean, I got deployed, but it was never... God forbid anyone wants me holding a gun and protecting us as a physician. But, um, you know, you, you are getting all the intel, but you need to learn to think critically and quickly on your feet. And so you're not, you know, moved by emotion, but what are the, what are the facts and what did we know? You know, so that past experience is very important as well. So that's a- absolutely really good. And, and, and by the way, that idea that diet warrants that pause careful reflection and then quick determination of what makes sense, that's a critical issue in its own right. So, you know, our culture does not treat diet with the respect it deserves. You, you are as aware of this as I, diet measured objectively, diet quality is the single leading predictor variable of all-cause mortality and total chronic disease risk in the United States today. Number one, leading cause of mm-hmm. premature death and chronic misery. And yet, you know, people are willing to be talked into silly, quick fix fad diets that they watch on TV, you know, or right. um, that get peddled to them in an infomercial. We would never do that with the things we take seriously. You know, we, we would not get talked into an alternative to education, for example. Hey, there's a quick fix alternative to education. Don't, don't, don't send your kids to school. Do this instead. You know, my 10-minute program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, get rich quick schemes. That's the stuff of sitcoms. Serious adults right. don't take that seriously. Wealth management. You know, if you've got money, you, know, you, you could just spend it all today. But if you've mm-hmm. got kids and you're thinking you might want to retire someday, and nobody does that. You know, you have to save some and you can spend some. And There's a responsible approach. And so there's this sort of set of things that responsible grown-ups treat responsibly. And then there's diet where, you know, we all go into a trance. And if somebody promises us that we can lose 37 pounds in 16 minutes, we start reaching for a credit card. I mean, what is that? So, so that idea that this is one of those things that belongs on the list. No, no, no. This is serious. Lives right. are at stake, you know, like right. they are in a combat situation. Lives are at stake. You I mean, here it's just a slower timeline, but you know, poor diet kills more people than all forms of violence combined. Right. It, Absolutely. It's, it's the number one killer in our culture. So it deserves respect and flipped around. It's the number one source of vitality, longevity, more years in life, more life in years, and it can help save the planet into the bargain. It deserves respect in that direction too. So, you know, you speak in your epilogue um, regarding ask the practitioner, you know, you hear someone say something, what do you eat? And then how do you translate your theories or your, your truth into practice? So can you tell us maybe in a nutshell, (laughs) so to speak, what do you think, you know, the homo sapien species should be eating? And then how do you translate that into your own life? What does that look like in a day of, you know, Dr. Katz? um, Yeah. Yeah. Happy to answer both. And, and, you know, your reference to us as a species, homo sapiens, 
um, obviously that's the reason for my subtitle, why pandas eat bamboo and people get bamboozled. And, and I start out in the book saying giant pandas eat bamboo and you know zebras and wildebeest eat grass and lions eat zebras and wildebeest. And there's a reason for all of this, right? I mean, there, and, and we routinely see it. You know, you put animals in a zoo, you don't run randomized controlled trials to figure out what to feed them. You say, what were those guys eating when we found them? Let's give them something like that, right? So the dolphins get fish and the lions get meat and the zebras get grass and so forth. So we are animals. We are creatures. We are a species. And it doesn't make sense that every kind of wild animal on the planet without any science at all knows what to eat. And we, with the biggest brains and the most science, are lost and confused. That's just bizarre. But I start out by saying we once knew how to eat. Let's start there. And, you know, obviously in the world where we were eating in accord with our adaptations, we were eating real food, uh, mm -hmm. whole food, direct from nature. Um, most paleoanthropologists argue that we got at least half and most think more than half of our calories from plant foods, a wide variety of wild plant foods, high in nutrients, high in fiber. Uh, and then, of course, we did eat animal food, too, and a variety of animal foods. Sometimes it was more fish and seafood, depending on where our tribe was living. Sometimes it was more terrestrial animals. But in every case, it was wild animals. And the flesh of wild animals is a dramatic departure from the flesh of domestically raised beef cattle, for example. Just a quick, for instance, there. Uh, and again, this is from the literature on Paleolithic nutrition, where they've done the math. So I'm, I'm getting this information from real experts. Average cut of uh, modern beef, uh, grain-fed for the most part, factory-farmed, if you will. About 35% of the calories come from fat, and much of that is saturated fat. Okay, so that would be typical meat. Mm -hmm. Not processed meat, just our typical red meat. Um, compare that to the kind of meat our ancestors ate, and the experts say antelope's a good stand-in for that. 7% of the calories come from fat, so one-fifth almost none of it's saturated and quite a bit of it's omega-3. In other words, antelope is rich in fish oil because it didn't used to just be fish oil. It used to be an oil that was prevalent in the food supply until we domesticated it out. Well, that's really interesting. So then we use this blanket term meat, but you can't say human beings are adapted to eat meat because that doesn't mean hamburgers and hot dogs. Yeah, we're adapted to eat you know, antelope and venison and stuff like that, right? So, so there are all sorts of implications for, for how we ought to eat. So it is a very good place to start. What do we know about us as a kind of animal? What do we know about us as a species? That's bedrock. And I would argue that's a diet of minimally processed foods, water when thirsty, a wide variety of plant foods. And, you know, yes, frankly, there's room in there for animal foods, but it's animal foods from wild animals. So there, there was no dairy. Um, that's a somewhat contentious subject, but our native diet did not involve any dairy other than our mother's milk. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the meat of wild animals who lead a wild existence eating their own native wild diet. You mm -hmm. want to do that? I think you're fine. Uh, but the basic theme in the modern world where we obviously don't have the acreage, you know, for everybody to be a hunter-gatherer. By the way, just to append, I, I did that math. I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post some years ago. Um, and I, I, I dug into this literature, how much space is required for a single adult to make a living as a hunter-gatherer. And I, I then translated that to the level of 7.7 .7 billion um, modern homo sapiens. And my math, and so this is, this is available in that column, um, my math was we would need 15 times the surface area of the entire earth. That's absurd. Wow. And, and the, the result of that is that even experts in Paleolithic nutrition say 
Dorothy, we're not in the Stone Age anymore. It's just out of the question, right? So right. What, what we can learn from our native adaptations is something about maybe the protein intake levels that are optimal for us, but we need to get it today mostly from plants, period. End of story. It's not a human health issue anymore. It's a planetary production issue. It's a sustainability issue. It's an environmental issue. We're done. If we wanted to live the lifestyle of hunter-gatherers, we should have stopped making babies a long time ago. You know, if, there was, if there were 100 million of us, we'd be fine. 7.7 million, forget it. So the basic theme of optimal eating informed by all of that and modern science is a diet mostly made up of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, plain water for thirst. We're done. I mean, really. And then, you know, the variance on that theme, you know, add some, the, the meat of, of game, for example, and it's paleo, add select dairy and it's vegetarian, leave both of those out and don't eat eggs and it's vegan. Um, add in a, a generous amount of extra virgin olive oil and minor amounts of meat and seafood and it's Mediterranean. And it, you know, it can be high and low in fat, who cares? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that's my answer. Are the best diets high and low in fat? Uh, yes. Who cares? You know, I mean, a Mediterranean <laughs> diet can be optimal. You can have a low-fat vegan diet that's probably just as good. We really don't have science to say one's better than the other. Macronutrient thresholds are not terribly helpful. I could keep going, but that's why the book is 750 pages. So that, that's the basic theme. There are variations on the theme. There is no obvious one best diet, but there clearly is a theme of optimal eating for homo sapien health. And it's shifted more in the direction of plant predominance for the sake of the planet. And that's how I would answer about my own diet too. So um, I practice what I preach. And, and in fact, all of the Katz family greatest hits are available for the world's use. Um, my wife put together a beautiful recipe site, freely accessible. It's called cuisinicity.com. It's like Cuisine City, but with an I in the middle, Cuisinicity. All of her recipes, she's got videos of herself cooking in the kitchen, showing you how to make stuff. It's really lovely. And you'll see exactly what I eat. But you'll also note on Cuisinicity a temporal shift with ever less animal food. So I, I haven't eaten mammals since I was a teenager. I gave them up because I had dogs. I loved horses. It was, you know, I just, I couldn't get comfortable with these guys are members of my family. These guys are for dinner. So I, I renounced that a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> I pretty much stopped eating poultry some time ago because of concerns about the ethics and factory farming. Yeah, you can source them locally and so forth, but you know, I've had a relationship with a chicken or two and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're interesting characters. So I, you know, so I, I eat poultry a couple times a year. Um, oh. my mom would disown me if I didn't have her turkey at Thanksgiving. So, you know, every now and then, but very, very rare, locally sourced, treated decently, fed well, all that. I did routinely include fish and seafood in my diet. I like, I like it a lot. Um, I'm really worried about the oceans. I'm really worried about the fisheries. I'm really worried about the salmon runs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, when, when, you know, I, I, there are provocations from my ardently vegan colleagues, you know, is eating fish really good for people? You know, actually looking at the epidemiology, I think it is, mm -hmm. but I know it's bad for the fish. <laughs> and, you know, frankly, that's what concerns me more these days. So I've cut way back. So I'm vegan much of the time. But I'm, I'm not religiously vegan. Um, I, you know, I have very high nutritional standards. I'm overwhelmingly plant predominant. I do eat sustainable fish periodically. I like seafood. Um, there's a little bit of dairy. My wife is French. She grew up in southern France. So you, you know, she uses cheese very selectively um, in very small amounts. It's kind of a treat, a garnish. But you know, the idea of her eliminating it altogether, I, that's not a fight I'm willing to have. So we eat very little dairy, but we have a bit. 
So, you know, again, there's no religiosity to it, but it's totally in accord with real food, mostly plants. And, you know, I'd say five days out of every six, my diet's vegan. And the sixth day, there's that's the bit fish or a little bit of cheese or something like that. Gotcha. That makes sense. So that's good to explain to everyone when you're talking to an expert, what do they actually do? So, and I've chosen just to do strictly plant-based myself and my family, which has been great. Um, So it's, you know, it's, uh, but all those variables that you mentioned, I would like to really talk about a couple of things. One is the oil. Um, So there's many, you know, as I transitioned into like a whole food plant-based diet about eight years ago, um, I get, you start reading about the different experts and then you're realizing, wow, there's a lot of different caveats here. Exactly. There are fashions even there. Yeah. And it was really interesting. And um, that's kind of the joy of working at the journal that we're getting all these guys under one one umbrella and the research. I think it's been fun. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the oil and the fat? Because you said, you know, the high fat, low fat, you know, what, what is the science actually say, or what, what would you suggest to someone? Yeah. So uh, again, from my perspective, and and everybody tends to be a bit partisan. So, you know, the the advocates for avoiding added oils, they have their reasons. The advocates for generous additions of oils, they have their reasons and often invoke the Mediterranean diet. Uh, You know, I've tried to look at the full breadth of evidence as agnostically as possible. And again, my answer is, you know, are the best diets high or low in fat? Yes. I mean, that, that's really my perspective. But if they're high in fat, it's good fat. And good fat means a number of things. You know, if you're going to use oils added to your diet, they have to be, you know, represent a salutary distribution of fatty acids. So, you know, really oils that are good for people are not just rich in unsaturated fat and low in saturated fat, but they have a very balanced array of unsaturated fats. So, you know, some portion of monounsaturated fat, which has certain health promoting properties, a balance among the polyunsaturated fat types, so not too much omega-6 relative to omega-3, you know, all of that. So where do you find that? Well, extra virgin olive oil for sure, which also offers the additional benefit of a very high concentration of some really interesting antioxidant compounds. There's a, there's a whole literature on oleocanthal, for example, one of the antioxidants that's unique to olives. Um, showing reduced mutagenesis and changes, favorable changes in gene expression and, you know, really, really interesting stuff. And then you've got, you know, the population level evidence that, you know, we've got two blue zones in the Mediterranean region of the world where people routinely live to be a hundred, don't get chronic disease and they eat a lot of this stuff. So I mean, it's pretty good real world reality check. Uh, yeah, this actually seems to work. But you've also got a blue zone in Loma Linda, California, with lots of vegans and vegetarians, many of whom do the low-fat approach. And you've got a blue zone in Okinawa, Japan, where the traditional diet was very low in total fat, and certainly they weren't adding olive oil. So you know, you look across the observational evidence, you look at the randomized trial data. My conclusion is there's some oils that are very good for us: extra virgin mm-hmm. olive oil, um, organic, cold-pressed uh, canola oil. Um, there's actually a new version of soybean oil, believe it or not, that has an almost perfect fatty acid distribution. It's not GMO, it's selective breeding, but uh, high in omega-3, reduced omega-6. It, it's, it's almost right between high omega-3 canola and um, olive oil and lower in saturated fat than either. And it's really, it's almost a perfect distribution. And it's got great culinary properties too. It's got mild flavor, it stands up to heat well. Um, so, you know, I really look very carefully. You, you may have noticed, sorry, that the, the entry on cooking oils in The Truth About Food is, is one of the longer 
entries about a specific food group, um, and it has more detailed citations. And I spent a lot of time conferring with expert colleagues, ranging from colleagues in nutritional epidemiology looking at effects in populations to lipidologists who knew a heck of a lot about um, you know, specific effects of specific fatty acids, and then to food scientists who could tell me everything I needed to know, okay, how is this stuff produced? So, you know, people carried on about, well, don't eat canola because it's, you know, it's produced a particular way. And they said, no, all oils can either be extracted mechanically or chemically. And whether you're talking about canola or coconut oil, you want mechanically expressed oil. So cold pressed, um, ideally organic, and that will tell you that the oil was squeezed out of the coconut or the canola seeds um, rather than extracted through a series of chemical enzymatic steps, which have a tendency to change the, the, um, the nature of the oil. So, you know, it, it, it was a real education for me. At, at the end of it all, I asked a few leading experts, you know, what's in your, I asked Walter Willett, I asked Joy Bauer, I asked Michael Pollan, I asked Mark Bitt, you know, what oils do you guys use? And then I included my own. And in our kitchen, we, my wife relies, we use extra virgin olive oil, sort of the go-to, um, organic cold-pressed canola oil when you don't want the flavor of olive oil. And then others are specialty oils. I mean, I love, um, you can get oil from walnuts. It's fantastic. It's expensive. Um, it's flavorful. It's great. Avocado oil is also great. Um, and then, you know, for higher temperature cooking, I think coconut's an option. Um, I think I may prefer peanut, but, um, you know, I mean, there, there are reasons to make different selections. The argument that we should avoid added oils altogether, where does that come from? Well, two places, really. One is back to this idea that we should eat like we did in the Stone Age. And there was, you know, I mean, fat dripped out of things that were cooking. And so I don't think we can say they didn't use oil separately from food. I think it may have just happened some of the time, and they probably did. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, there was no supermarket to go to and get a bottle of anything. So they probably used it much less than many modern cultures do. And then the other argument would be the research you know very well, Dean Ornish's research, uh, Caldwell Esselstyn's research showing regression of coronary atherosclerosis with specifically a low-fat whole food plant-based diet. So not just, you know, not just a, a one, not, not just veganism in general, but a specific approach emphasizing whole foods and emphasizing low-fat without the addition of oils. I still have a problem with that because, okay, yeah, that's the one area where we showed regression of atherosclerosis, but that's only because those particular studies did serial angiography. Mm. What about the Lyon diet heart study, which didn't do serial angiography in 3,500 people, but what it did do was look at who went on to develop an MI and who didn't, who went on to die and who didn't. And the reductions in myocardial infarction and death were just as great with a Mediterranean diet as with those low fat vegan diets. So again, are the best diets low or high in fat? Yes, but they're, they're either low in total fat or they rely on really good sources of fat, a balanced array of sources of unsaturated fat. And to make that simple, that means you're getting most of your fat from olive, avocado, nuts, and seeds. And if you're getting them anywhere else, they're coming from fish and seafood, which would give you the rich infusion of omega-3. So that's interesting. So you're with the discussion regarding the high and the low fat, because that's looking at individuals who are used to describe populations that, you know, Okinawa and we have Loma Linda, maybe their base of their diet since childhood was relatively healthy. So they don't have the burden of an illness, but you were also talking about, about Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Ornish's work um, where they're seeing their regression. Now, do you think all of this evidence is pointing to the plants as being the source or it, it sounds like you don't, 
do you feel like the actual oils, I mean, it says like you, it really doesn't really matter that that's going to have a heavy disease burden of the amount of fat. Well, but well again, heavy plants. Yeah, no, no. I, yeah. I, I don't think I, I really, you know, I, so there I'm definitely with my, you know, Mediterranean diet uh, fan colleagues, uh, the whole Harvard contingent uh, you know, basically lines up behind the Mediterranean diet. Um, yeah, I mean, studies of isolated oils show consistent mechanistic benefit. Uh, just that this is confidential, but we just wrapped the study in, in my lab um, looking at extra virgin olive oil compared to effectively, you know, supermarket olive oil. And we saw marked improvement in endothelial function with extra virgin olive oil. It just isn't, you know, just that delivered acutely. Um, and so, you know, I, I think high quality oil is good for people. The other thing is, you know, you look at the Mediterranean cuisine, it's really appetizing. And, and part of what makes it appetizing is the appropriate use as a culinary aid of oil. You know, I mean, you can just do more things when oil is available to you. So again, if you're, you're not inclined to eat it, I do, do I think you need to eat olive oil to get the health benefit? That's where I part company from my colleagues who say Mediterranean diet's best. I say, you know, not so fast. We've seen these same outstanding results with you know, very low fat, um, whole food plant-based diets. I, I'm not convinced the Mediterranean diet's any better. Um, but I'm also not convinced just because we chose different outcome measures that we can say decisively that the low fat approach is better. I think we've got options. I just think you know, if you're going to include a generous amount of fat in your diet, you want it from all the right sources. You know, I, I would say at the end of all this, Lori, the one word that gets far less attention than it warrants and is perhaps the single most important word in discussions about nutrition is balance, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if, if you're, the overall portfolio of foods and nutrients winds up in balance, then how you achieve that balance is probably less important. So, you know, in the case of fat, you can have a balanced array of essential fatty acids in your diet with a very low total intake of fat. You can also have a balanced array with a higher intake of fat where you know, it, all, most of it's unsaturated. There's a balance of MUFA and PUFA and within PUFA of omega-6 and omega-3. And I think as long as that balance is achieved, there's more than one way to get there from here. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think to some extent, our tendency to tribalize is a bit unfortunate because it, you know, it, it, at least it looks like we're arguing with one another. Whether we really are or not is hard to say. I, you know, at the True Health Initiative, I, I, would, I put that organization together to be able to show even when it seems like we're arguing, we actually agree about 90% of what's true. We just tend our, to focus our time on the residual 10%. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you ask the world's greatest champions of, you know, the low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet and the world's leading champions of a paleo diet and the world's leading champions of a Mediterranean diet, don't ask them which diet is best because you'll get three different answers. Mm. Ask them, what would you list as the important components of an optimal diet? And those lists would be 90% confluent if those mm -hmm. people know what they're talking about. And we just don't tend to talk enough about that. So I think there's more than one way to achieve balance. And if you look at the research literature, again, you know, I think th that's the other tendency we all have. We all shop for the answer we preferred at the beginning. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you really, if you suppress that tendency, say, well, look at all the evidence, you find some great results with higher fat diets, some great results with lower fat diets, some very interesting mechanistic studies showing benefits of restricting total fat and benefits of eating the right kinds of fat. And so 
good news at the end of all of this is the theme of optimal eating for human health is not up for debate, but there are, as best I can tell, variants on the theme, which I think empowers more people to get there from here. If there was just one way to do this right, a lot of people would say, well, forget it. It's not for me. There's more than one way to do it right. I think that creates an opportunity to lead everybody in the right direction. That's a very, I think that's wise words. And there's, there is some variance in the nice thing about being human is that we can tolerate a lot of different approaches to this and still thrive, which is fantastic. So yeah. you had mentioned uh, the True Health Initiative, which you founded. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you formed it? Very specific objective and, and very much aligned with the book, The Truth About Food, which, by the way, you know, I wrote to support the mission of the True Health Initiative and the proceeds from the book go to the True Health Initiative, which is a nonprofit, 501c3. Yeah, the reason I created it was we're losing the war. I mean, just pure and simple. I'm just not somebody who's willing to keep doing the same things even once it's clear they're not working. So, you know, uh, there is so much misinformation about diet and lifestyle and health. And those of us who are responsible and highly trained and dedicated to getting it right, it's not clear that we are winning over the hearts and minds. You know, I mean, every time a new silly fad diet comes along, a gazillion people line up to try it, right? Right. And, you know, I look at the, the span since I started my efforts some 30 years ago. Do we have less obesity, which is what I signed up to help make sure would happen? No, we have more. Do we have less chronic disease, which is what I pledged myself to, to seeing in the world? No, we have more. Um, we're losing the war. So we need new methods. We need new tools. And one of the things we have to do in this incredibly noisy time of ours, right? So everybody's got the megaphone of the internet. People are getting information via social media. There are internet echo chambers where people go shopping for whatever opinion they happen to own, find some other wingnut who owns it too and says, aha, I was right. I mean, it goes on all the time. Right. And, you know, essentially, that's confirmation bias. I think I'm right. <laughs> if anybody else believes it too, that I know for sure I'm right. And you, know, you're, you can always find somebody else who believes whatever you wanted to believe in the first place. So we need new methods if expertise and hard-earned knowledge are going to rise above that. We need something new to amplify the signal above the noise. That's the True Health Initiative. And I, I took a page from the playbook of Dr. Seuss, uh, Horton Hears a Who. You know, when the Who's were going to be boiled in Beazel nut oil, back to our prior oil. talk. There you go. Uh, I think that's a good choice, by the way, Beazel nut oil. But you don't want to be in it. And the Who's were going to be in it. And uh, as everybody will recall, they saved themselves by pulling together, pooling their voices and all yelling at the same moment, we are here, and they were heard and they were saved. So, you know, in the case of public health, those of us who, who know what we're talking about, nobody needs to know we're here. They know we're here. What they need to know is that we agree much more than we disagree, as I was just saying. You know, seriously, you talk to the, the leading experts who advocate for a vegan diet and the leading experts who ad for, advocate for a Mediterranean diet. If you ask them the wrong question, you know, are the best diets high or low in fat? One will say low and one will say high. And you'll say, ah, these experts can't agree about anything. If you ask them the right question, what are the, what are the most important components of a dietary pattern that's optimal for health? They would talk for five minutes, you would compare the transcripts and say 90 to 95% confluent, tiny bit of difference of opinion at the end. That's so much more important. So the True Health Initiative honors that. I, I effectively tested this hypothesis that I'm sharing with you now. I think if you were to do that, you would find there's massive agreement across the spectrum from paleo to vegan and everything in between, and there is. 
and and it, it was empirical when I first formed the hypothesis. I'd been to nutrition conferences with colleagues all around the world. You know, when you're together for long enough, eventually you have to eat something, and then you see what everybody eats. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds like we can't get along, but we're all eating mostly the same stuff. You know. Right. I think the public deserves to know that. So, so the True Health Initiative Council of Directors is about 500 strong from 45 countries, unbelievably diverse, a who's who in public health. And the primary goal is to bring them together and show the world that we agree. And the landing page for the council, there's a huge composite image of you know, hundreds of us saying, we agree. And then we, we have a pledge that we all basically support. It shows what we agree about. We don't agree about everything. You, you're never going to, you know, that's like herding cats. You're never going to get a bunch of experts to agree about anything. Who cares? But we agree about the fundamentals and that's enough. And, and, and part of my motivation there, I finished my training in preventive medicine in 1993. That was the year uh, Bill Fagey, Mike McGinnis's paper came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association entitled Actual Causes of Death in the United States. And, you know, what they said is the stuff we list on death certificates, those chronic disease conditions, those aren't causes. Those are effects. Mm. What's causing atherosclerosis? What's causing uh, all these degenerative diseases? And they, they answered that question. And, you know, it was basically a set of 10 factors, which collectively accounted for all of the premature deaths in our country every year. And they were all modifiable a quarter century ago. And the top three were tobacco, poor diet, and lack of physical activity. 80% of the action was concentrated there. That's incredible. 80% of the action. So 80% of premature deaths, bad use of feet, forks, and fingers, mm -hmm. all totally fixable. And so way back then, you know, we had a pretty clear sense of just the minor adjustments to diet that would help us achieve an 80% reduction in premature death and chronic disease. So the True Health Initiative says, look, they're, they're, you know, the details are going to be contentious for a long time. We, we, you know, you're, you're never going to be done doing research to answer every last question. But while we're continuing to answer the questions we haven't answered yet, we shouldn't fail to use the answers we have because the answers we have are enough to eliminate from the world around us 80% of chronic disease and premature death. And that would be one of the greatest advances in the history of public health. Hmm. So we are there to represent the agreement, to represent where science sense and a global consensus of experts comes together to respond in real time to media crises like the recent news. We're having this conversation just shortly after the crazy publications about eat more processed meat. True Health Initiative was all over that, helped mobilize a, you know, sort of a global um, coordinated communication effort among leading experts so that the, the, the responsible counter narrative would get out to the press at the same time as the papers. Um, and then we do special projects to dive deep into topics like, you know, what was the reality of the seven country study in Ansel Keys' uh, life's work? Um, what is the reality about um, our need to get protein from specific food sources? How does that translate into the way we should be measuring protein quality? And, and on and on, but we have a number of projects lined up. Right now, we're, we're launching a project to, to look essentially state of the science for the ketogenic diet, which is popular. Mm -hmm but based on not much other than a whole lot of, you know, hysteria and marketing hype, do we know anything about long-term health effects? Are we able to, to address sustainability both by individuals and in terms of environmental impacts? Um, so we're, we're doing the, uh, essentially a white paper on the state of the science of the ketogenic diet. And, and the only way to do these so that they're impactful is to not limit the expert panel to partisans but to actually open it up. So I actually have some people who are favorably disposed 
and some people who are unfavorably disposed and, and, and require that the information you produce run that the gauntlet of, if you will, a team of rivals. And that's, what, that's how we try to put our projects together so that what comes out the other end you know, it is unassailably true. And um, those reliable truths are sort of the bedrock of the True Health Initiative. So how do you get <clears throat> rivals, so to speak, to come together and actually build a consensus and produce something? Because it seems to me, if you have stubborn experts, that that would be very difficult to do. Stubborn experts who are more interested in being stubborn than being expert would not work. Um, Real experts are willing to follow the evidence where it leads. I, I would say, you know, that's one of the cardinal elements in genuine expertise. You can't call yourself an expert if you immediately refute any evidence, no matter how high quality it seems, just because it's at odds with what you need to believe. Well, right. then you're no longer an expert. You know, now you're basically, you know, you're, you're, you're proselytizing. So I, you know, people who have a, a, a predisposition in one direction or another, but say, you know, but I, what I care more about than anything else is what's true. Mm -hmm. and, and all the best scientists, you know, that's our passion. That's the passion we share. There, there are things that seem right to me and I'm going to advocate for them. But what I care more about than anything else is what is actually true. And our understanding of that is never perfect and it can always be improved. And you can never improve your understanding of what's true by only looking for the opinions you already own. In mm -hmm. fact, the most important part of the homework you have to do is to look very carefully at the competing and opposing points of view and how good is that evidence. And you've got to be willing to beat up on the evidence you like in all the same ways you would beat up on the evidence you don't like, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. what determines the quality of a study is not the outcome. It's not the conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's the methods. You know, was it a good question? Was it answered honestly? that determines the quality. And then you either like or don't like the answer, but that's a separate issue. Mm -hmm. so, so I would say true experts and good scientists shouldn't be stubborn. Um, we should all be willing to change our minds and follow the evidence. Now, you could also note that we have massive amounts of evidence already, and a lot of what is most important is already known, and I totally agree. And I, you know, I, I think the likelihood of any pursuit of information for one project changing everything we thought was true before it, you know is vanishingly remote that's not confirmation bias that's just you know at some point you know that if you toss an apple in the air it's going to fall down and not float away because every apple ever has always done that right i mean we just right. you know we don't need there's stuff you don't need to study anymore it's just is how it is and that's true with diet and health and you know it's true with lifestyle in general so you know stubbornness at that level that's not stubbornness that's just being realistic so you want people who are pragmatic and realistic and see the big picture, but you don't want everybody being members of one party. You know, if, if you start out with everybody seeing Kumbaya, the likelihood of being willing to look fairly at opposing arguments is diminished. If you start out with people say, no, nah, you know, we've got differences of opinion. I favor this, you favor that. And, but we all agree that what matters most is, you know, what does all of the best evidence that we can aggregate tell us is true. And mm -hmm. if everybody at the beginning signs up for that, then you got a great project. It's not going to be easy. And, you know, there'll be some wrestling matches along the way, but that's worth doing. Yeah. Uh, it worked in Lincoln's cabinet. It, it works to get at the truth in science too. And I agree. So when we were starting the journal two years ago with Dr. Kim Williams, who I so much respect, you know, these were the conversations did, did we had. Yeah, did yeah. I? Kim is, I mean, is just, he's one of the best people. Yeah, absolutely. And I've learned so much and I'm so thankful to be under his mentorship. But 
it's been interesting as, you know, we've had these discussions, you know, people asking, you know, okay, so we're primarily plant-based, you know, people running it, the editor, the managing editor, a lot of our peer reviewers, what if we got an article, you know, submission talking about oil or fish or whatever, and he's like, well, we have to look at it objectively. We have to look at the science. And that really was very important to set that tone up front. Yep. So then, yep. you know, as we carry on, it's exactly it. The truth is going to be what you said. The truth will set you free. Yeah, well, no, absolutely. And and yeah, so yeah, I have enormous respect and affection for Kim. I think he's terrific. And and I think he's a fantastic scientist. And, you know, he the, the reason that he practices the way he does. And, you know, again, we're much more alike than different. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm... 95, 97% there too, um, is for the same reason. I mean, we followed the evidence and, and we probably care about three kinds of evidence, the evidence related to human health, the evidence related to environmental impact and what we do to our fellow creatures. Um, you know, I mean, all that's really important to me. And you look through those three lenses and, you know, the, the, the argument is either nothing but plants or very, very close to that. And, um, and so we agree. And it's not just because, you know, we were natively predisposed to think that way. It's because the evidence took us there. But yeah, so for example, you know, and you, you could come up with a very narrowly framed question. We've all heard that, that fish is good for health. Well, compared to what? Um, you know, maybe the reason it looks so good is most people are eating a whole bunch of really bad stuff. And so more fish means less hamburgers. And yeah, that's obviously a good thing, except right. for the fish. But what if you compared a truly optimal plant-exclusive diet with a same optimal diet, but you made room for wild salmon. You know, mm-hmm. so you pick the best kind of fish, um, and you pick the best kind of balanced, you know, beautifully put together vegan diet. Um, now is fish still good? I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer. Now that's a trial that could be done. You couldn't mm-hmm. you couldn't randomly assign people those diets for you know, thirty years, but you could do it for six months and look at biomarkers and so forth. I don't know the answer. I really don't. You know, I know that, that as a species, we are constitutionally omnivorous. As you said, we can run on a wide variety of fuels. What is the optimal distribution of food inputs? I'm not sure we know. Hmm. I'm, not, I'm also not sure I totally care, right? Hmm. Because again, it doesn't matter even if eating fish is good for people, if it's really bad for fisheries and really bad for the oceans. And, you know, the trade-off in, okay, maybe an optimal plant-based diet plus a little bit of wild salmon has some advantages over just the plant-based diet in terms of specific human health markers. But the net adverse effect on the environment outweighs that. Well, I I personally, you know, I think the health of the planet is the single signature issue of our time. That matters a lot to me. So, so again, you know, there are ways to be really devoted to where the evidence has taken us so far and still allow for the fact that there are discrete, discrete questions we haven't answered yet. And the answers would be interesting. Mm, That is very that's a lot to think about, you know, for someone who's saying more of a, well, I include meat here and there. I was like, well, then let's expand this a little bit to the environment, the treatment of animals, yep. where is that source, things like that. So really important. And, you know, I don't think there should be cruelty on any menu. I, I, I don't think it's legitimate to be oblivious to the terrible abuses of factory farms. I really don't. I, you know, you just, you're not allowed to do that. You, you know, you can't eat stuff that, that required cruelty and stick your head in the sand. You know, I don't think that should be okay. I think we all need to know. Um, and then in terms of environmental impact, you can't say, yeah, but you know, I'm going to care more about my own health than the health of the biosphere. No, 
it's one thing. There are no healthy people on a ruined planet. So, you know, right. it, it's not like you can unbundle those. I mean, we, we ruin our aquifers, we defoul our land, we despoil our waters and air, we ravage biodiversity, we unbalance you know, these harmonious ecosystems, we burn down the Amazon to graze cattle, we burn down the rainforest in Borneo for palm oil plantations to make processed food. We're cooked. Right. I mean, right. you know, it, these are direct human health effects. So it's all, it really is all one thing. Um, but yeah, you look through those three lenses and overwhelmingly. Right. Plant predominant diets, variations on that theme. And, and again, there isn't, I, I don't find anywhere I go among real experts much debate about that. Right. Absolutely. Well, even my vegan friends would say, well, any, any amount of death inflicted on animals, cruelty. And that's hard to, <laughs> to, to, to argue. So they, I did want to, you know, that's it's something else to consider. And I, and I agree, we're global citizens. We can't just say, well, I live in the United States. I have plenty of food. I can choose what I want. You know, I'm not going to worry about what's going on in the Amazon, but we, we do need to worry no, about no, it. No, 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 no. It's all around. Yeah, no, right. I mean, it was all too easy, you know, when, and, you know, the fact that the fires in the Amazon are not in the news still doesn't mean they're not still burning. Right. But when they, you know, when they were the top news story, it was all too easy to blame it on the crazy president of Brazil. The reality is if there weren't a global appetite for meat, there wouldn't be the financial incentive to do that in the first place. We're all complicit in it for sure. Absolutely. Definitely. And so that's kind of, speaking of meat, can we talk about all, everything that was going on uh, just in the last week? <laughs> can yeah. you kind of set the, what's going on, what happened, what was your response to the True Health Initiative? Can you describe for us? So I, yeah, I suspect the, the listeners to this podcast are you know, probably pretty well informed on current events in, in, in the diet world and may already know. But in brief, um, in a somewhat unprecedented move, the Annals of Internal Medicine published five systematic reviews by the same reshuffled group of authors on the topic of meat eating and health outcomes in the same issue. So they pretty much gave away an entire issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine to this group. And um, four of these systematic reviews were looking at the health effects of eating meat and processed meat. And they all showed statistically significant harms of eating more meat and processed meat. More death, more heart disease, more cancer, more diabetes. They all showed that. But this is a group not led by physicians or public health experts. It's a group that is really more about statistics. They do systematic reviews and they use a metric called grade to score the quality of evidence. So they are, they are the guardians of the quality of evidence. That's what they do. Uh, so they scored their own evidence, um, which by the way, you, there, there were all sorts of holes in their systematic reviews and all sorts of really strange anomalies. They left out studies that they should have included. They discarded studies because the effects were too good, uh, you know, just really strange stuff. From my point of view, research malpractice. But even leaving that aside, they scored their own evidence, called it weak, and then issued guidelines in the opposite direction. Because this evidence is weak, we are publishing guidelines. So a separate sixth paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine guidelines, keep eating all the red meat and processed meat you want. Yes, it's true we found harms, but we think that's weak evidence and therefore we recommend the opposite. So for starters, let's note that that is, you know, essentially, to, let me put it in the bluntest of terms, it's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. The, the idea that first do no harm is the Hippocratic Oath is, is a bit of an error, but close enough. The prime directive in medicine is avoid harm. 
Um, and it translates into something called the precautionary principle, which says if something looks like it may be harmful, you have to assume it is until you prove it isn't. So with people on trial, innocent until proven guilty. With potential dangers in the world of medicine and public health, guilty until proven innocent. You know, if, if it looks like red meat and processed meat can hurt you, we're not going to recommend you eat that. Now, you know, if eventually a study's done to prove that, no, it's actually good for you, okay, but the burden's on them to prove it. These guys didn't prove that. They actually showed harms and issued guidelines in the opposite direction. That really is just sort of flat out bizarre. But the, I think really the biggest problem is that um, this is kind of an argument about who gets to decide how human beings know what they know. Mm. So this group of effectively statisticians, they did exactly the same thing with added sugar several years ago. Same journal too, by the way. Systematic review, the harms of added sugar, and they found weak evidence, and they said so people should keep eating all the sugar they want last time. That was called out in the New York Times then and now uh, as having ties to industry funding and so forth. So there are also issues of strange conflict. But you know, here's the thing. These, this, this group is basically contending that the only way we're ever going to know anything about diet and health is their way. We need lots of randomized control, double-blind double placebo-controlled trials, and we need meta-analyses of those trials. Well, are you willing to be randomly assigned to your vegan diet or you know, a meat-heavy paleo diet for the next 40 years? Hell no, nobody is. And if we could talk you into that because you were flat out crazy, could we blind you so you actually don't know what you're eating for the rest of your life? Uh, hell no. And oh, by the way, what exactly is a placebo diet? So these guys took methods that were designed for drug trials and said it's the only way to know anything. Nonsense. Human beings know that it's a bad idea to stick your hand in a fire. How do we know that? There are no randomized trials. If these guys were responsible, they would look for the evidence, say, oh my goodness, no randomized trials. Uh, no good observational epidemiology, all just pure observation. We score the evidence as horrible, and we therefore issue guidelines that people should go ahead and stick their hands in the fire because we're not convinced of any harms. I mean, that's what they said about processed meat. The same would be true about sticking your hand in a fire, about looking both ways before you cross a street, about our kids running with scissors. You have children? Yes, three. Grown, though. Okay. But did you generally recommend that it was ill-advised for them to run with scissors when they were little? Yes. And <laughs> every you, every yeah. parent does. Good idea, right? It's, it's bad to run with scissors. Duh. Don't um, stick your finger in the, you know, electrical socket. Right. No randomized trials in either case. So if you use grade <laughs> and the methods these guys tell us are the only way to know anything because, mm -hmm. you know, somebody died and put them in charge, um, we would not advise our kids not to run with scissors. We would happily let them stick their fingers in electrical outlets and see what happens. We would just dart out into traffic and assume that all would be well. And we would place our hand in the fire and you know, pull out a charred mess. It, it's absurd. Right. So I think actually the, the methods of investigation, the methods of research have been weaponized and turned against the truth. To me, that's a much bigger issue than meat. Again, the same group that refuted the harms of meat despite their own data and everybody else's did the same with added sugar. So it's not as if this is about just one kind of food. Mm -hmm. This is about where do human beings acquire understanding of what's true. I've run randomized trials. I've published randomized trials. I've done meta-analyses. I've published meta-analyses. I have great respect for the methods of science. They are tools in a toolkit. 
I'm a pretty good carpenter. I have a great wood shop too. I respect all those tools, but I cannot use a saw to be a hammer. I cannot use a hammer to be a screwdriver. I cannot use a screwdriver to be a wrench. You've got to use the right tool. These guys are deciding our one tool is right for every job. If you don't know it our way, you can't know it. And that's just false. And every human being with even a little bit of common sense knows it's false. And all the parents listening in, don't let your kids run with scissors. <laughs> well, what's disturbing, one, is that there is a publication that would actually publish such things. Very. I, and, and by the way, the fact that the annals publish the systematic reviews and even the systematic reviews with the grade score, here's what we found. There were net harms, but we grade the evidence. So we can stop there. You'd say, okay, don't know why, but you didn't really add anything, but fine. But guidelines, the presumption of one self-appointed group of statisticians to tell us we're issuing guidelines to 325 million people or you know, 8 billion around the world at odds with our own data. I don't understand that at all. Not at all. Oh. That's bizarre. It's... And, and, and so the, the True Health Initiative, just to, to back up, because you asked me about that. So yeah. we, got the, we got all this under embargo a week before it came out. Ooh. And so we said, this is just bizarre. So what wound up happening is that a who's who in nutrition, Kim was in the mix. We started mm -hmm. exchanging emails. I said, Did you see this? Have you read these papers? And so we all scrambled to read through all these five systematic reviews. This is bizarre. I mean, their own data show harms. They're issuing guidelines saying, do it anyway. What is the journal doing? We need to find out what's going on here. And, and you know, I mean, we were deeply concerned. We were not just concerned that the public was going to get bad, wrong, irresponsible advice about meat. We were deeply concerned that this news cycle devoted to new guidelines, eat all the processed meat you want, would result in distrust for you know, the overall narrative about nutrition, distrust in, in all of us, mm -hmm. disgust for all of us, and you know, would propagate the idea that you can't trust the experts. They don't know what they're talking about. They can't agree with one another. That's right. toxic. I mean, that, that undermines public health at its foundations. So we had a massive effort to coordinate and you know, decide how we wanted to respond. And there were um, commentaries and, and letters and columns and media interviews. And we corresponded with the Associated Press and Reuters, all under the terms of the embargo and everyday health and on and it went. We also wrote directly to the editor-in-chief of the journal and said, look, you know, the, the, the systematic reviews are your business if you want to publish the data, but guidelines from the, make no sense. Um, at a min, you know, we have serious concerns about flaws in the systematic reviews. We see no justification for guidelines at odds with their findings. Uh, we encourage you to withhold publication and conduct a full audit of what's going on here. And you know, when we got a, a thanks but no thanks from the journal, we reached out to the leadership at the American College of Physicians and said, you know, I, we we presume the journal is independent, but you ought to be aware this is going to be very contentious. And by the way, the journal sent out a press release that not only kind of hyped up these papers because the press release said new guidelines, no need to cut back on red or processed meat for your good health. That, I mean, that was clickbait, really. Wow. Um, and it was issued from the Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians. So we said, you know, if, if the American College of Physicians is not endorsing these guidelines, you ought to say something because it sure looks like you are. Mm. All those efforts produce pretty much nothing. And the result of all that is that the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and our colleague, Neil Barnard, um, had to, after publication, file a complaint with the FTC and said, you know, this was false advertising. I mean, it, it's not true. These studies didn't even look at good health. So the idea that, you know, you don't need to cut back for your good health, 
that was that was willful clickbait really on the part of the journal's press office and you know that drew in the press and created amplification of the message and and did harm and people are going to die because they get bad information from a credible source so there's now a complaint uh, filed with the ftc what most of us did though was have media interviews and opinion pieces ready to go the minute the embargo lifted and you know all we really wanted to do we were not looking to discredit anybody or the journal but we wanted the diverse opposing opinions of really a who's who in public health to greet the public at the same moment that they were hearing new guidelines eat all the pepperoni you want so at least there would be a balance in the information and we achieved that i think it substantially mitigated the harm and it was a huge amount of effort i mean almost constant effort for the full week after we got this under embargo and it continued obviously after publication and more interviews and more columns I'll, i'll have yet another column on this topic coming out tomorrow uh, and I know that uh, Christopher Gardner and a colleague just published a commentary in the British Medical Journal today. It's very good. Uh, so it goes on and on. But sadly, the damage has been done because, you know, we, we've created yet another round of he said this, she said that. And that does attenuate the public's belief that we have consensus about what's true. And if we can't agree about added sugar and processed meat, what the heck can we agree about, right? So I think these guys, th- this group, um, has done tremendous harm. Uh, and I regret it deeply. We did the best we could to limit the harm, but harm was done. And, and again, not, not, not just the issue of meat, but credibility, right. trust. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, do we know what we're talking about? And we do. Right. Uh, and at some point, we have to reach beyond the methods of science, grab people by the lapels of common sense and say, look, you do not need a statistician telling you you should not advise your child to look both ways before running into the street. You don't need an RCT to tell you what you already know. Right. Absolutely. So I guess that the question, the lingering question is what is a consumer to do? Right. So they just read the headlines and they say, Oh, this annals of internal medicine, this seems like a credible source. And now they're saying this isn't an issue. They're not going to know all the workings of the, you know, that's going on behind the scenes of people trying to oppose this and that it's wrong. And I mean, so this, you know, that's where your book would become helpful, but you know, well, and the, and the true health initiative. So that's what the true right. health initiative exists for. I, you know, I don't, I, I wish I had, I wish I had an answer that were just do this, but right. instead it's look, um, there needs to be a place you can go that is above the fray. There needs to be a signal audible above the noise. There needs to be a source of expertise that you know is nonpartisan, um, you know, because maybe you have a particular preference and you don't want your advice from people who disagree with that, but you really want to know what's what. It, it, you're probably too young to remember these commercials, but there were commercials for a brokerage firm called E.F. Hutton back in the day. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the, the commercials. Exactly okay. So, <laughs> oh, oh. All right. It's, it's that, it's that. Good plans. Yep, exactly. <laughs> So anyway, the, you know, the commercials figured two people talking about their, their investment portfolio. And one would say, well, my broker said blah, blah, blah. And nobody paid any attention. And the second person would say, well, my broker's EF Hutton. And then, you know, everybody in Grand Central would do this and you could hear a pin drop. And of course the tagline was when EF Hutton talks, people listen. And the idea was, you know, if you get information from unassailably credible sources, Mm. everybody wants to know. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do with the True Health Initiative. These, these are still early days. Uh, there's a lot of growth ahead of us. Um, 
but you know we'd like to have the resources to be available to respond in real time to every important article of health news um, and to be that common ground you know it's uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not just that there are experts there it's that you know we've got experts literally from vegan to paleo the world's leading experts on the paleo diet are on the council the world's leading experts on the vegan diet are on the council and everybody in between that's important Mm-hmm. And and all of us agree that this that these papers were irresponsible. It doesn't matter whether these people eat meat or don't eat meat. We all agree these papers were irresponsible and at odds with the evidence. And that's important. That's powerful. So you know, I, I think other than invoking common sense, reminding people what science is for, reminding people that you do not need a statistician, a meta analyst to tell you everything that matters. Most of what matters most in your daily life, you know from pure observation. That's how humans have gotten most of the information that we use every day. We know what floats and what sinks from observation. We know that we shouldn't stay underwater too long because we can't breathe down there. We know that breathing air works better for us. Breathing water works better for a fish. You know, I mean, so much of what's so important about getting through the day, you know, you really shouldn't put your hand in the fire. Um, some things are safe to touch. Some things are not. Sharp objects are likely to cut you. I mean, on and on, children should not run with scissors, uh, you know, all of this is pure observation. I, you know, I, I, again, as someone who does RCTs, I, I value what they can do. But what they can do is a very narrow contribution to understanding. I think we really need to have a war at the level of how do humans know what we know. I, you know, I think in some sense, we have religionized science. We have weaponized science. And different factions within the realm of evidence-based medicine are now competing to be the ones who boss us around and say the only way you can know something is true is my way. And that's mm-hmm. just false. So, so right. uh, you know, it, uh, we're engaged in the war. Um, you're asking how do we win it? And, uh, you know, if I knew that for sure, we would have won it already. <laughs> well, I, I think you need add soldiers to your army. Yeah, one. well, for um, sure. But your True Health Initiative, have you heard of Snopes.com? Like, I think it's SNLP. Yes. So you kind of want to be that for science and science and, and, wanna, and lifestyle and health, right? You want to yeah. be the place that people go. So do you yeah. publish consumer friendly? You know, we have like, a newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody listening, you can go to True Health Initiative, sign up, get our free monthly newsletter. So we okay. absolutely all these. So, you know, the, these big media explosions, thank goodness, are relatively infrequent. Um, but you know, there's controversial stuff about diet and lifestyle in the news every month. So we take the sort of the most contentious stuff and we invite a group of world leading experts to comment and we sort it out. We publish that newsletter every month. That's an e-newsletter. You just go to True Health Initiative, sign up, um, join the ranks and absolutely, uh, we need more soldiers. So let's do that. Okay. That's phenomenal. I'll definitely be pushing that from now on. It's for sure. Good. Thank you. And yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned the New York op-ed piece. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that said? In yeah. Yeah. So th- this was several weeks ago now. Um, the title of this op-ed in the New York Times was, Our Food is Killing Far Too Many of Us. Mm. Boom. I mean, that's pretty provocative. Um, even more so when you consider the sources, Darius Mozafarian, who's dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition at Tufts, and, you know, really thoughtful uh, nutrition scholar. And Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture for the United States. And the two of them came together to say, it's a fact. It's, a, it's an established fact in the epidemiology literature. Diet is the single leading cause of premature death in the U.S. today and increasingly around the industrialized world. 
And then the bulk of the article, they cite the sources that justify that contention. And then the bulk of the article was, what do we do about it? And they had many proposals related to policy and, and practices and programs and so forth. But one of the things they said, which is fairly obvious in terms of garnering more support from the clinical realm is nutrition should be captured in every electronic health record. And they're absolutely right. Diet is a vital sign. If it's the single leading predictor of all-cause mortality, it's a vital sign. It's vital to health, vital to your health now, vital to your future health, and, oh, by the way, also vital to the fate of the planet, which no other vital sign is. Your blood pressure matters to you, but it doesn't affect the Amazon, but your dietary pattern might. So, you know, I mean, it's vital in so many ways at so many levels. And yet, unfortunately, their call for nutrition in every electronic health record is a pipe dream, because how's it going to get there? Is everybody going to spend 90 minutes doing a food frequency questionnaire and trying to remember exactly how many times in the past six months they had exactly you know how much pasta? And by the way, what was your marinara sauce and how much of that? And um, you know, you had salad. What was your serving size? How many leaves of lettuce? And you know, what was your dressing? And how much of that? I mean, nobody can remember that. It's impossible. So you could do that. Um, you could log everything you eat for three or seven days and you could get nutrition into every electronic health record. How many people are willing to do that? So, you know, this is clearly a case where necessity is the mother of invention. We need invention to give us means of capturing dietary patterns, dietary quality, so that they can be measured routinely and managed more often. And that's, that's what I do now. Um, so I, I founded, a, I, I invented a method um, uh, called diet quality photo navigation. Um, in the simplest possible terms, it is the same method that put these on the bridge of my nose. Um, I, I had perfect eyesight till I was 45 and then slowly my arms got too short to read in bed and here I am. Um, <laughs> but when you go to the eye doctor and you're looking to optimize your corrective lenses, there's no lengthy questionnaire about how you think you see and what you remember your vision being in different times types of light. There's none of that. You look through a device called a Phoropter and you see two images and you know, the tech asks you, okay, one of those is clear. One of those is blurry, which is which. And you say, that one's clear. And they say, great. How about now? Two more. That one. How about now? You do that four five, six times and they've got a perfect match for your eyes and diopters. We do that for diet. Basically said, look, the, the goal of all these methods of trying to remember every niggly detail about diet that nobody really can remember is what is your habitual pattern of dietary intake? So we map the diets of the United States, stratified on one axis by diet type, stratified on the other axis by diet quality measured objectively using the Healthy Eating Index 2015, um, populated the entire map with three-day menu plan standardized to 2,000 calories a day turned those into composite images, shrunk those down into fingerprint views that can show up on a smartphone. We ask you a couple of onboarding questions, then we say, okay, which of these two images looks more like stuff you eat? And you say that when we say, how about now? And you say that when we say, how about now? Within 60 seconds, we have homed in on a very close approximation. We then quantify it by asking you your age, sex, height, weight, and activity level. That runs through something called the Mifflin-Saint-Gior equation to estimate your required calories. At the back end, we have a database that records 150 or more nutrients relative to calories. So within 60 seconds, we can say, gotcha, here's your diet type. 
Here is your diet quality measured objectively using the Healthy Eating Index 2015. And here are estimates of your intake of 150 nutrients. Hmm. Well, when you can do that in 60 seconds in the waiting room and integrate it into every EMR, nutrition could be in every electronic health record. Now, Diet ID does more than that. We can also identify your goal diet based on health objectives. We can plot a route from where you are to where you want to go and provide behavioral navigation to help you get there, and we can track your progress. For people who want to know more about all of that, just go to dietid.com. But, you know, again, I totally agree with the idea that nutrition should be in every electronic health record, but you can't just say that. We need methods. You have to build the methods that would make that possible. Uh, so we've done that. And uh, we validated this against the FFQ. We have robust correlation. We've got a paper in peer review. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think if we measure diet routinely and every clinical encounter is informed by a snapshot of here's where you are and let's compare that to where you ought to be and then let's start talking about that journey i don't think clinicians are going to solve the problem of a culture that runs on duncan and where multicolored marshmallows are part of every child's complete breakfast i think we've got a cultural problem but i think clinicians can be the tip of the spear oh yeah for sure I, you know um absolutely we should be the ones talking because we touch lives every day that have ripple effects so <clears throat> that is actually really brilliant I love that idea. Thank you. Yeah, so it's, check out yeah. dietid.com. Thank you. It, it's super cool. I mean, it really... it's, well, one, it, it takes the burden off the clinician to be well-versed in nutrition and then how to translate what they're hearing from a patient that may or may not be biased or memory or whatever. Because, you know, if someone's asking you about your diet, you're probably going to tell them something better. But if someone's just picking pictures off, you know, an interface off well, of that, Exactly. So that's the other thing. Yeah. So, you know, people tend to lie inadvertently, <laughs> but we box them in. It's a dichotomous choice. So, you know, it's easy to tell a little lie. And if you're saying how often you eat broccoli, you overestimate. If you're saying how often you eat marshmallows, you underestimate. But if you're saying this or this, mm -hmm. it's hard to lie at that level. Well, honestly, this one looks more like what I usually eat. So, yeah. Right. So we think we solve that problem. Um, we're, we're running studies against biomarkers. Um, you know, I, I fully expect to show that we actually outperform uh, semi-quantitative FFQs, which, you know, again, we can do this in under a minute. They take up to 90 um, and routinely take 60 or more. So massively faster, massively more economical. By the way, we license two practitioners. So those listening, you know, if you're involved in clinical practice and want to explore use of this tool, um, just reach me directly or again go to dietid.com there's an interface right through the website to reach out to us we'll be happy to give you a demo show you how this works and take you through it but that that's our business model is to license two health professionals wellness um, you know to really inform all of those encounters with detailed information about diet obtained quickly economically painlessly and and much more robust information than you'd ever get by spending 15 minutes asking questions you know, I spent 25 years taking care of patients. I talked to diet. I talked about diet with all of them. I didn't have this tool and I wasn't willing to subject my patients to an FFQ or a multi-day food diet. So I just asked questions. So I got, you know, I spent 15, 20 minutes, half an hour getting pretty murky information. Mm -hmm. We can get you extremely comprehensive, detailed information down to nutrient levels in 60 seconds. So yeah, we think it's a game changer. We really do. So then could do you give a guidance to the practitioner? Cause I mean, as we know, we don't get any type of nutritional education, at least 
not much. Yeah. In medicine, do you give some type of like, okay, here's the prescription. Yep. So, your... so yes. Yeah, so we can do this one of several ways. So we're, we're an open API, which means we, you, you basically, we can be the Intel inside. You can decide what your machine is and we're the chip in it. Um, so we can do this one of several ways. Intrinsically, our system looks across the expanse of diets included and curates them based on the peer-reviewed literature regarding advantages for specific health outcomes. So, for example, you know, if you look at diet and, and high blood pressure, you know, sort of tops of the list based on, on the, the bounty of literature would be the DASH diet. Now, you, you know, you, that may not be your favorite diet, but you know, that's where there's the most literature. But then there are a number of others, the Mediterranean diet, whole food plant-based. And so you know, essentially you'd say these are the leading options based on peer-reviewed publications for ameliorating that specific issue, which of these would you like? And so then you combine the evidence-based guidance with individual preference. But you know, that could be done by the patient alone or it could be done with the clinician. And if you, you know, so in the waiting room in 60 seconds, you could have their baseline diet, you could know their health conditions. Our app would then say, okay, so we, in your case, we wanna reduce blood pressure, dyslipidemia. Okay, here's what the app is saying, the recommended diets are. I, for you, I really like this one best. So you could have the combination of digital guidance plus personal opinion. That would work you know, for somebody like us, but for someone who knows nothing about nutrition, right, you might just right. let the app work independently. It's so, yes, better so we, than what you're doing. It, right. which, which all too often is nothing at all. Um, so we, and the other thing we can do in a particular setting, so let's say, you know, you're involved in a big practice where you all agree there are particular kinds of diets that you want to advocate. We can customize the app. So only those are, so we, we kind of, so the, the baseline, the onboarding is whatever kind of diet you have, but then the recommendations for specific goal diets are winnowed down to whatever set of selections a particular group favors, right? So, I mean, if you, if you're in a setting where we really want all of our, employees or all of our patients to adopt a, a plant-based diet. So we're going to limit the recommendations to flexitarian, vegetarian, and vegan. Fine. You know, so then we, it, it can work that way too. Oh, cool. So, so to, to satisfy the largest number of candidates for improving their diet, the native app includes a very wide array of diets and then stratifies them all in the same objective way. So, you know, there is a tier 10 of the paleo diet. Mm -hmm. And actually, so it's at much less meat than the lower tiers and only game and a wide variety of plant foods, for example. So it's actually tier 10 of a paleo diet is more like a, a top tier vegan diet than it is like the bottom tier paleo diet. And that's one of the interesting things. High quality diets, they cluster. Right. You know, they share a lot of properties. So you have the option of looking across the full expanse or choosing from within it. And, but yes, so the app will do that. It will provide, cool. you know, here are the best options for specific health goals. All right. Well, that's really intriguing. <laughs> so good, good. Because Thanks. we have a lot of, um, you know, I, I have a lot of lifestyle medicine physicians, family practice docs who reach out and ask me for guidance. So I think this is a great way to maybe step into this realm and get some education and help them with very solid evidence and quick and something useful for their patients. So definitely. And, and, very good. And, and by the way, um, you know, we got guidance from the beginning from a who's who in nutrition. So sure. Christopher Gardner, David Jenkins, Walter Willett, Frank Hugh, Linda Snetzelar, I mean, just an amazing group of people. Were, were yeah, I'm interviewing us. Dr. Dinkins next week, actually. So, I, I, I yeah. love David. All right. Well, if I don't <laughs> talk nice to him before, he, he really is. Yeah. Tell him I say hello. <laughs> I will for sure. Um, well, I 
boy, I've taken a lot of your time. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we could keep going. There's so much else to talk about, but if you could just give one like last piece of advice for our listeners, um, as far as anything that you feel that would complement a healthy lifestyle, I mean, what is that one piece of advice that you like, if you had a, you know, your, your little elevator speech to tell someone you're like, this is what it is. Boy, there's so many good options, but I think given the conversation we've just had, I would say science has the force of a freight train, but sense must lay the tracks. Otherwise you get a train wreck. Uh, you know, I really, I, I think that all too often in this modern noisy world, we see science operating as if it doesn't depend on sense and it does. Um, science is the most potent means ever devised to answer hard questions. Only sense can tell you if you're asking a worthwhile question in the first place. So, you know, whether you're in the health professions or, you know, a civilian outside of all this, um, we've all got the same native endowment of sense. And don't ever let a scientist convince you that's unimportant. It's crucial. And it's Mm -hmm. crucial for scientists. If we combine the two, science and sense, you know, now we're really onto something. And again, I, I really hate to see the examples in our in our world of when we divide the two and imply that, that you need one, but not the other, it's just not true. So I, I would say that one above all others. I mean, there are many other good candidates for the, the quick, you know, here's a tip as I leave, but that one's universally relevant to kind of how we understand what matters. So given the context, I'll, I'll go with that one today. That sounds fantastic. Well, Dr. Katz, thank you so much for a very intriguing and interesting, compelling conversation and I am sure the listeners are going to enjoy it. I hope so. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you.